Well, as you can see, based on the, sorry, let me move that a little bit. How's that? The horse trough over here on the left, that we're going to have more baptisms today, which is pretty cool. And remember that we practice baptism as a sign of obedience. Baptism doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. But we do definitely do that as a sign of obedience, and that's super awesome to see. So that means that I have a limited amount of time compared to normal and need to get going on what we're talking about today. So Genesis chapter 29 is what we're going on. So let me just say a quick word of prayer, and then we will kick this off. Father God, I pray that you would bless our time together today, Father. I pray for those that are being baptized. We thank you for their show of obedience today, God. We thank you for the work that you've done in their hearts. We pray that this word would go out and be a blessing to those that are hearing it, Father. Pray that the people in the back with the kids and all the workers, Lord, would be also glorifying you today. They would have your power and your presence as they work with the kids, and that much would be accomplished in your name today. In Jesus' name, amen. So does anyone remember last week's sermon? No one. That's awesome. Well, that was Johnny, so I'm, you know, that's fine. Just kidding. Okay. So last week, the last thing that happened, remember Jacob's ladder, where he saw this vision of Christ and the angels going up and down on the ladder. And then we saw in the end of John, in the last verse of John chapter 1, how Christ basically says, that's him. The angels are going up and down on the Son of Man, and that Jacob saw a vision of Christ, and this amazing, awesome thing that he, he went through, and then he immediately turns around and kind of bargains with God, and he says, you know, God, if you like take care of me and give me clothes and food and safety and all this stuff, I'll serve you, and I'll give you 10% of everything that I get. So you see this juxtaposition in, in Jacob between God working with him in these incredible ways and his own spirit going, okay, what do I get out of this deal? So now we're going into, like I said, Genesis chapter 29, so we can turn there. And we're going to see a great example of God's relationship with imperfect children. And we're going to talk a little bit about discipline and punishment and consequences. So that should be fun. And as, as we brought up many times uh, that Joel coined, he started talking about well, wells, water, and wives, and how those always seem to go together in the Old Testament, and I was thinking about writing a country song about that, with something about coming to get your daughter because of the water, and on and on, but haven't done that yet. Don't know about the songwriting? Really twangy country song? which is not, however, my favorite kind of music. Yeah, thanks, Steve. You might need to mute me before this is over. So the consequences of sin can be long-lasting. Jacob, his name means deceiver. We've talked about that before. It means heel catcher, somebody who trips other people up. And he's going to get deceived in this, and we're going to see that God disciplines those he loves. So let's start reading in Genesis 29. Verse 1, I'm reading from the ESV, if anybody cares to use the same version if you on your phone or whatever. 
Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in a field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Verse 4, Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? So Jacob shows up. How old is Jacob? Mid-30s? Man, sorry you said that, Steve. He's 77 years old right now. Jacob is an old dude, right? Now, he lives to be like 180, so he's still only halfway done, and he's in the prime of his life. And, um, but he, he's, he's been around. So it's not, we, we always have this idea of Jacob and Rebecca because in our minds, young people get married together. And in this situation, this is not what's happening. He's 77. Now she's around 22. So there you go. The Bible tells us what happened, not necessarily always the best way to do things when we're talking about historical narratives. So don't forget that. Somebody just said sugar daddy. Which is pretty funny. Okay. <laughs> so he comes up and he says, Brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. Now, Jacob's father, Isaac, also sent a servant to get his wife, Rebekah, from um, Laban's father, Bethuel. So it's, it's Abraham's family from, this is like 500 miles away from where they live now. And so now he's sending Jacob back to get another wife from the next generation. So Jacob's pretty happy because the first people he runs into are the people that know the person he's trying to find, and then he sees that one of the daughters are there, and he's all ecstatic about that. And then he says to them, Behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and pasture them. And they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. So now Jacob seems kind of arrogant. Like he walks up, says hello to these people, first time he's ever met them, and then he starts telling them how they should be conducting their business. He's like, you guys need to go water your sheep. It's not time for you to do this. And, you know, you should do what I tell you to do. Now, again, he's 77. So he's probably used to being listened to, especially where he comes from. So it's not like it's some young guy coming and telling them what's going on. So then they're, they're already predisposed to listen to their elders. But they do kind of argue with him because... In verse 9, it says, while he was still speaking to them. So they were going back and forth. He's trying to tell them, you guys should go do this. And they're like, no, this is not what we're going to do. While he was still speaking to them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now we already know that she's working way harder than a lot of other people do. That's not a fun job. Genesis 29.10. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. 
Now this shows how, what kind of a stud he was because he just goes and rolls the stone away by himself and waters all of her sheep. So even though he was 77, he was definitely in good shape. They were waiting for someone to come help them roll the stone away. Genesis 29, 11. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud, which is exactly what happened the first time I kissed my wife. <laughs> Just kidding. Other Jewish sources say that Jacob was wailing aloud because he had nothing to offer in a dowry for Rachel. And the story goes, and this is not in the Bible, this is extra biblical sources, which is in the book of Joshua. It says that his brother had found out he was going on this trip, and he sent his servants and his oldest son to go steal everything Jacob had and kill him. It's not likely that Jacob would have, his father Isaac would have sent him on this journey with nothing. Because like when he sent his own servant to get his wife, he had camels laden with all kinds of gold and jewels and things like that in order to pay the bride price, so to speak. And so the fact that Jacob doesn't have anything when he shows up is, is odd. And there, these other stories that talk about this, that kind of shed light on it a little bit, say that they spared his life, but they took everything else he had, so he's basically got a water skin and a staff, and he makes the rest of the journey on foot. Verse 12, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. Notice that he's wailing and kissing her before he introduces himself. She's got to be standing there going, what is happening right now? There's this guy that looks to be older than my father or old enough to be my father, and now he's kissing me and crying. Oh, now I know who you are. That's great. Thanks. Verse 13, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Now, Laban is 30 years older at least than Jacob is, but he's booking it. These guys are not sitting around in, you know, an old folks' home. That's not happening. Genesis or verse 14, and Laban said to him, surely you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what should your wages be? So the way I've, I've read this is that Jacob's been there for a month and he's been working, working with the animals and the flocks. And then Laban's like, hey, okay, what should your wages be? You shouldn't do this for free. There are some arguments or some people that think that Jacob was just sitting around doing nothing and Laban's trying to use this as a way to get him to do some work. But it doesn't seem to be that way from the straightforward reading of it. And this, of course, he says, what should your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak and we're not exactly sure what that means, but it's contrasted to the next phrase, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. So he's been there for a month, and he already is saying, the, the scripture's recording that he loves Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, okay, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to some other man. Stay with me. So he's like, yeah, that sounds great. 
You want to work seven years for, for her? I'll let you work seven years. Verse 20, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And this is one of the kind of sappier moments in the Bible. He says, they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. He worked seven years and he's like, it's nothing. I'll do this forever. Now Jacob's 84 years old. Rachel's about 29. There are some Jewish traditions that say that they were twins, Rachel and Leah. But again, that's not in the scripture and we don't know if that's true or not. Even so, there wouldn't have been too many years between them. Genesis, or verse 21, he says to Laban, Jacob says to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. He's like, all right, I worked seven years. It's time for us to be married. Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. And again, in the book of Jasher, there's another interesting thing that illuminates this from an extra biblical source. It talks about the wedding. Because in verse 23, it says, In the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. So obviously Leah was heavily veiled, or Jacob would have known that this was not Rachel, that he had worked seven years for. And in this other account, it says that all the people in the wedding were chanting, Halia, 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 and Jacob didn't know what they meant. And they were basically cheering Leah on. So what it was saying is that everyone in the entire place knew that he was marrying Leah except him. He's the only one. So he's like, okay, I'm getting married to Rachel. They stand up, they do their thing, they go in, and the next morning, he wakes up. Verse 24, Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant, 25. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Why then have you deceived me? Jacob. Well, if we, what do we remember about Jacob? First thing he does is he steals his birthright from his brother, right? Esau comes in from the field. He's famished. Jacob's got some stew. Esau's like, give me something, some of that stew to eat. And Jacob's like, give me your birthright. And Esau says, well, I'm going to die anyway if I don't get food right now because he's really dramatic. So, okay, fine. Give me the stew. You can have my birthright. Then when he's going to have the birthright given by Isaac, he, what does he do? Him and his mom conspire. He covers himself in skins, makes sure that, he smell, that he's very hairy on his arms because Jake, or Esau is very hairy, and he smells like the field, so he's got clothes on that smell like he came out of the field, and he, he's a man of the field, and he makes this food for his father and then lies to him and says, no, I'm Esau. And Jacob's like, are you sure you're Esau? And he says he puts his head next to him and smells him to make sure that he smells right. And he feels his arms because he doesn't, he's like, something's going on here. But I guess it's Esau. So he gives him the birthright. So Isaac wanted the elder son to give him the birthright, but he got the younger. And now Jacob wanted the younger daughter, but now he got the elder. Things are being flipped around on him. And he says, why have you deceived me? which people have asked him that same question, I'm sure. And Laban has an answer all teed up, verse 26. He basically says, we don't do things like that around here. 
he says, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. He's like, I don't know what to tell you, man. We don't do that. The firstborn needs to be married off first, then the second one. So complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for another seven years. So Laban's like, no problem, dude. You want to marry the younger one? Seven more years. And Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So this was a, a normal tradition in rich households back in the ancient Near East. They would give the, the bride a servant that would go with her wherever, wherever she was going to be going that would do whatever she told her to do. She was basically like a slave. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Now in the next chapter, so I'm going to be preaching this chapter and the next two chapters, but we won't go to the next two chapters until after Christmas. It'll be the first weekend in January. So we'll see there that the total time, Jacob, he was there seven years for Rachel, but turned out to be Leah, another seven years. And then he's going to serve another six years for a bunch of cattle. So he's going to be there 20 years total before he goes back to his own home. And this next section, starting in verse 31, I'm calling Baby Wars. Because there are 12 tribes of Israel, right? There's 11 children that come out of this. But it's through four different women, because it's both wives and both maids. And they are fighting back and forth. And there's even a story later on where Joseph is in the fields and Leah's son, Reuben, goes out and gets some mandrakes and Rachel wants the mandrakes. And Leah says, well, if you want the mandrakes, then you're going to have to let me have Joseph tonight. And Rachel's like, fine. So when Joseph comes in from the fields, he's like, you need to go into to Leah because I bought... She bought you with the mandrakes. I mean, it was like completely strange and odd thing that we would, we would just look at like, I don't even understand what's happening right now. But that was part of the traditions. So, baby wars, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. So God looks at that, and he's, he's like, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't love her. He hates her, so I'm going to bless her with this. And there's actually a verse in Deuteronomy. Let's see if I can find it. I'll probably come across it here. But there's a verse in Deuteronomy that basically talks about the whole thing of loving one wife over another and that you shouldn't do that. So later on, in the law, God puts that in there, which is interesting. Verse 33, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he is giving me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now, in, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So she, obviously it was a blessing to bear children, and it was a blessing to bear sons. 
But she is continually thinking this in her brain, like, okay, I gave him another son, now he's going to love me, now he's going to love me, now he's going to love me, which is a very sad state of her, uh, in her mind in living with this because she knows that her husband doesn't care about her. All right, where was I? Simeon, and then Levi, and verse, that's in verse 34. Now I have borne them, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons, therefore his name is called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah, then she sees bearing. And that one's a little interesting because she doesn't say anything about her husband that time. She's like, you know what, I'm just going to praise God. Now I have four. And the next chapter, we will continue the Baby War Chronicles. Please stay tuned. So now let's move on and talk about three words. Discipline, punishment, and consequences. And what is the difference between these words? How many people think there's a difference between discipline and punishment? Right? Are they ever used in the same way? Yes? No? Maybe? Should they? You're like, well, he's, it's a trick question. I'm not saying nothing. That's exactly what's going on right here. So punishment is for the benefit of the offended. You did something to me. Punishment benefits me. It doesn't benefit you who is being punished. It's punitive. You're, in a sense, repaying the debt that you've incurred by what you did. And it also looks toward the past. It's dealing with an action that you did in the past, and the punishment is related to dealing with that, getting that debt repaid. Discipline is for the benefit of the offender. It is a corrective action. It's meant to change people's behavior, and it's looking toward the future, make you a better person in the future. So when we think of discipline, a lot of times we might think of disciplining your child, right? But you can also think like if you are an athlete, you exercise discipline on yourself to get better at that sport. And you think of a coach, when someone does, they make a, make a mistake during a practice or a game and the coach makes everybody go run laps. That's discipline. It's not punishment. It feels no fun at the time, and the New Testament tells us that no discipline seems good when, it's, when we're being disciplined. But it's meant to make them better at what they're doing, and the relationship between the coach and the athlete is not negative, and it's not over, whereas if you look at the ultimate punishment, which is capital punishment, there's no thought of corrective action. This is, you killed someone, now you're going to be killed. It's a punishment. And the last one is consequences. This is a natural chain of events that happened because of our own behavior. And it isn't a discipline or a punishment, it's a consequence of what we've done. And sometimes it can seem like, seem like a punishment. It can seem like the universe is punishing you. Now, in the, biblically, in the Old Testament, most of the time, the word punishment, there's one particular word, it's called paquad, and, I, and I'm not pronouncing these correctly because I didn't look it up on Google to see how exactly it should have been pronounced. But most of the time, that's the word, and there's a completely different word for discipline. So when you see, in some versions, discipline is used 
where the word punishment is underneath very rarely. It, ha it does happen, but you have to look at the context. But in general, they are completely different words that are used to, to talk about the idea of discipline versus the idea of punishment. So that was just something interesting to note because it's not the same word. But in English, there's like, let's see, one, two, three, seven words in the Old Testament that are translated in English as punish or punishment. And they're, not all of them have the same roots. Like a lot of times in Hebrew, you'll have a word and it'll have a root word that means something, and then there'll be two or three words that are forms of it that mean similar things. But in some cases, these are completely different roots. But like I said, there's like seven different words. For discipline, there's only a couple. And most of them are one particular word. So the concept in the Hebrew is very separate from each other between punishment and discipline, and that's basically what I've laid out here. So why am I bringing all that up? So when we look at the Old Testament and we talk about different things, like everybody remembers the story of King David and his sin with Bathsheba, right? He commits adultery, and then he has her husband murdered. And what does God tell him about the baby? Because she's pregnant, she has a baby. He said, anybody remember? Hmm? The baby's going to die. That's what God told him through the prophet Samuel. He said, the baby's going to die. Was that a punishment or a discipline? What does it sound like? Sounds like punishment. Sounds like punishment to me. Now, you can't definitively say, because God did not definitively, I mean, he did say the baby was going to die. But the purpose of the baby dying was it focused on the action in the past, which was the sin with Bathsheba, or is it fo focused on some corrective action in the future? It seems to me like it was focused on the action in the past. And God was saying, you're forgiven, because he, David did say, I was wrong, this is all wrong, and he repented of his sin, and God said, you're forgiven, and he, and he moved on from the relational perspective. But there was this thing that happened. Later on, when you look at David and you see the way that um, his one son rapes his sister, right? And David didn't do anything about it. And the scripture tells us that David didn't do anything about it. And Absalom, the older son, who loved his sister, he took matters into his own hands and he killed his brother. So David seemingly abdicated his responsibilities as a parent. He didn't discipline or punish his son that committed this horrible wrong. And all of these bad things happened after that. Absalom takes the entire nation from David. He goes in rebellion. I mean, there's all these things that are happening. And you look at that and it's like, well, in a way, that seems just like consequences, right? It wasn't that God was punishing him or disciplining him. He abdicated his responsibility as a father, which had natural consequences in his life, and those were played out. Now, again, these are just, they're really just speculation, because unless God wrote it down in there and said, this is exactly what happened, you don't know, right? Later on in this narrative, Reuben, the oldest son of Jacob, he sleeps with one of Jacob's maids, so he defiles his father's bed, and he immediately lost his birthright. Right? So you've got this thing. He did this. Something happened. 
Ananias in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. These, these were a couple, they were married, and they had a bunch of land, and they, they had a lot of money. And they told Peter and the church, we're going to sell this land, and we're going to take all the money, and we're going to give it to the church. And then what they did, though, is they sold the land, and they kept part of the money for themselves and gave the rest of it to the church. And so then Ananias walks in and says to Peter, here's the money. And Peter said, did you give all the money? Yeah. And the Holy Spirit struck him dead immediately. That's punishment. It's like, boom, you're dead. Now, Peter made it clear. It wasn't the fact that you didn't give all the money or gave part. The the issue was you lied to the Holy Spirit because he said to his wife later before she dies, he said, the, the, the land was yours. You could have done with it whatever you wanted. You could have decided how much money you were going to give or none. But you said you were going to do this, and you lied to the Holy Spirit, and this was a punishment. But there's all kinds of different t- things in the Scripture where you see actions and reactions, but we always have to remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees. There was a blind man, and the Pharisees were trying to get Jesus trick him somehow, and they said, okay, this guy's blind. Who sinned to make him blind? Him or his parents? And Jesus said, neither one. He didn't didn't sin to make himself blind, and his parents didn't sin to make himself blind. He's blind so that we can show you God's glory, and then Jesus heals him of his blindness. But what we can take from that is that you cannot make a correlation between someone doing a bad thing and then having something horrible happen to them. Sometimes that does happen. But discipline is what we're talking about for the New Testament and our relationship with God. And God did this in the Old Testament. He would correct people and help their future as opposed to just punish them. If we go back to Isaac, Esau, Jacob, and Rebekah in verse 23 of of chapter 25, and the Lord said to her, this is to... Rebekah, Jacob's mother, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. So there's a prophecy that God gave to Leah and he said, when your children are born, the older will serve the younger. Esau was the oldest. So we had this prophecy that all the family knew. Esau wants to ignore it and he tries to bless the older son Esau because he loved him the most. Even though he knew the prophecy and he knew what God wanted, he was going to do his own thing. Rebecca wanted the prophecy to come true because that was her son. And what did she do? She takes matters into her own hands and she gives her son a plan. Dress up like Esau, put put camel hair on your arms, go do all this stuff. Esau had already agreed to give up his birthright, even though it was a silly situation, but he's trying to get it anyway. Because when he comes in after Jake, or Isaac gives Jacob the birthright, Esau's like, isn't there any blessing left for me? I want the birthright, even though he'd agreed to give it up. And I'm sure he knew the prophecy as well. No one in that situation was trusting in the Lord. They were taking matters into their own hands, and they were deceiving people and just doing whatever they wanted. They were being very selfish. It was like, as Johnny likes to say, it was like a Jerry Springer episode 
or a court case in Judge Judy. You know, it's like, no, he told me I could have the birthright. Well, I didn't want to give him the birthright. He tricked me. Well, you know, and back and forth. But the main thrust of this is deceit. Jacob tells people what they want to hear to get what he wants and to save his own skin. We see that later in a confrontation with Esau. Jacob is telling him whatever he wants to hear and giving him presents and gifts so that because he thinks Esau is going to kill him. And then he tells Esau, Esau says, all right, I'm not going to kill you. Everything's cool. I want you to come live with me. And you come, you'll be safe. It'll be great. And Jacob tricks him and says, okay, yep, I'll come with you. You, you go ahead because the women and the cattle and everything are going to move really slow. I'll meet you there. And as soon as Esau leaves, Jacob just says, okay, I'm going over here. He just doesn't go there. So he continues to behave in this way. But now, I believe that God is disciplining him. He's being deceived. He's having some of his own medicine given back to him. He gets a wife that he didn't ask for. We see in the next chapter that his wages over time, as he works for Laban 20 years, are continually changed. Jacob says they've, ch they've been changed at least 10 times. The wife that he loves starts off being barren. And we know that God did that because of Jacob's disdain for Leah. And then later on in Genesis chapter 35, Rachel dies in childbirth. So you can't necessarily say that Rachel dying in childbirth was a result of God disciplining or anything like that. But if you look at the way that he focused on loving Rachel and not Leah, that was a tremendous blow to him. And then later on, we see that he's more concerned over his son Joseph, which was Rachel's, and Benjamin, which was Rachel's, than he is all of his other sons combined. He cares more about them, their safety, what's going on with them, than he does his other sons, which is not a good, good thing to do as a father, right? So what about us? How many people realize that we all sin quite a bit? Every hand should be up, just in case you're wondering. But I'm not talking about big things. I'm not talking about adultery, life-destroying addiction, murder. I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about a, here's a $10 word for you, you know, the unfathomable gap between us and God's holiness. He's holy, we're not holy. There is just this huge gulf between it. It's infinite. You can't break it, which is why we have Jesus. Because Jesus takes his righteousness and he gives it to us. So now we are God's children, like we talked about the last few weeks. But when we think about sin of unkind thoughts, unwarranted anger and frustration about people, Focusing on fairness and justice just for myself, for my own comfort. Getting upset at people because my comfort is interrupted as opposed to things that I should be concerned for. These are things in many cases that nobody else sees and we can successfully hide them from everyone. When I have an unkind thought about a person in traffic, they don't know it unless I'm screaming and yelling and trying to ram my car into them. Then they might know it. But in general, that's not what people do. 
You get upset, you're thinking all these negative things in your head that you wouldn't say in front of your children, and then it goes on. They're not affected, the only person that's affected is you. But our Father in Heaven does see all those things. You don't hide sin from the creator of the universe. You don't hide sin from the person that you have a relationship with. You don't hide sin from the Holy Spirit. And so what is happening is God is constantly disciplining us over time. And again, not because we're in some big sin, because the sin is done, and then there's consequences. It's like if your child disobeys and you're going to punish your child, you're not punishing the child while they are still disobeying. They're done disobeying now. It's over. They got caught. So now it's a matter of corrective action. We don't want this child to do this thing in the future, so we want to make sure we figure out a way to change the behavior and make them a more productive, more useful, more helpful, more loving person in the future. This is what God wants for us. As the Holy Spirit works in our heart, this is called the process of sanctification. So we talk these big Christian, Christianese words, right? We have salvation, which is God saving you from your sins so that you become a child of God and you have eternal life. But the process of sanctification starts from the point of salvation and goes through your entire life, and this is the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart making you more Christ-like over time. And that process is painful, and that is the process of discipline. That's what's happening. And I think that a lot of times our view of discipline is negative and our view of, we think of it kind of like, okay, if I'm not currently sinning, then I'm not going to be being disciplined for anything. That they're an either or thing. But what's really going on is that you're always being disciplined. There's always things happening that God is working in your mind and your heart to make you what he wants us to be. It's kind of like we think about it like your hand in the cookie jar. Put your hand in the cookie jar, you get slapped. Hand out of the cookie jar, no slap. And then disciplines when I get slapped, and otherwise I'm not. And that's, that's a very, I don't know, infantile view of it, I guess. Um, but what's really happening, if the worship team would come up while we talk about sin. When sin, it's kind of like before, the, the formula is, if sin, then discipline, otherwise, no discipline. But what it really is, is when sin, then we repent, and you have discipline, and that discipline continues to go on, and that's how God works with us. Discipline is actually proof of our position as sons and daughters in God's family. Hebrews chapter 12, if you want to turn there, verses 3 through 11. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now it's talking about Christ and all of this people that were heaping um, violence against him, really, saying things and treating him badly, and then eventually we have the whole crucifixion. Verse 4, And in, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Like Jesus resisted to the point of having his blood shed. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, again, sons of God, my son, 
Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. In other words, you shouldn't be standing around stomping your feet saying, this isn't fair. This doesn't feel good. I don't like this. Because when God is disciplining us, he's doing it because he loves us and it's for our good. Verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the, ones, the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So we go back and discipline is proof of our position as sons and daughters in God's family. And that seems clear enough. When we experience consequences for our sin, we're forgiven our sin, but we shouldn't become upset and resentful because we're getting disciplined for changing our behavior in the future. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. And we've talked about the word endure before. It goes on. It goes on. It's not like stubbing your toe and five minutes later it doesn't hurt anymore. It's enduring. It takes time. And it's not pleasant. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and sons. In other words, if God is not disciplining you in your life, you're not his son or daughter. That's what this is saying. And that's a big deal. And that's why Paul continually tells us through various metaphors of racing and fighting and different things, check yourself to make sure that you're still in the race. Check yourself that you're not running it in vain. Make sure that you understand that the relationship that's talked about in Scripture is part of what you're experiencing. And that's, we're all supposed to continually do that. And because of what it says in verse 4, it's due to our struggle against sin that God does this in us. That's what the discipline is for. Verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those that have been trained by it. And there is a benefit, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So what does that mean? That is the result of, it's, it's coming out of the righteousness. If you are trained, you experience the benefit of training. And because you're trained, you're a child of God, and therefore you have been granted the righteousness that will bear peace in its fruit. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing the judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? 
delighting in God's law, delighting in God's mercy, in God's grace, when we do that, when we delight in those things, we are accepting the discipline and we want to try to learn from it. I talked, last time I preached, I talked about our birthright in Christ and how Esau despised his birthright and how we can despise our birthright. And this is an instance that if you don't accept the discipline of God, you're despising your birthright. You're basically telling God, I'm not one of your children. You shouldn't be disciplining me. That's what's going on in the background. Obviously, you would never say that out loud. If you're not running to God in discipline, when he's disciplining you, trying to go to him, then you haven't really gotten the lesson yet. So we should accept our discipline with open arms and not say that's not fair and metaphorically whine and stomp our feet, or as the Brits say, whinging. Everybody who's watched Harry Potter has ever heard the word whinging? But it's, it's a more specific word than whine. We use the word whining, it covers a lot of meanings. In the Brits, they use that word too. It also covers like the sounds that are made by people or animals, right? A whining dog. But whinging specifically means peevish or fretful complaining. And that's exactly what we're talking about. We don't want to complain about what God's doing in our life. So the bottom line is that this is how God proves to you that you are one of his children. This is how God molds us to be a unique, immortal, eternal person that is part of God's family for all time. And we're going to see more examples in the next few chapters of this, of God's working in that way in people's lives in this narrative. So let's pray, and then let's worship together, and then let's have baptisms. Father God, we praise you so much for this time. God, we thank you that you love us enough to discipline us. Lord, we thank you that you love us enough to bring us into your family and literally make us priests and kings, Lord, and children. We pray that you would honor yourself through us. We thank you so much for the time we can spend together and learn from your word. We pray for those that are being baptized today, Father, that they will be blessed as they make this public declaration of their commitment to you, Father, and what you have done in their lives. We praise you for that and for all here who know you, Lord. And for those that do not, Lord, we pray that your spirit and your mercy and your grace would pour out on them so that they may be brought into the family as well. In Jesus' name, amen.